me to do a home visit on the subject to see how his welfare is doing and how he's doing in general. Depends on the subject, but some of them range from once a week to every couple of weeks. Earlier this year, I went on a quick ride-along with two members of the Mental Health Bureau here at the Collier County Sheriff's Office. One was a deputy, Sergeant Tom Tavery. Talk to him, see how he's doing, uh, what he's been up to, he's been staying out of trouble, keeping busy, um, just make friendly conversation with him and see if there's anything that we can do to help him out uh, if he needs anything on, on his end. The other was a clinician named Carrie Miller, who is technically an employee of the David Lawrence Center. She's contracted to work full-time with the agency's Mental Health Bureau. Welfare checks like these are usually done by both Carrie and a deputy from the Bureau. Usually the deputy knocks on the door, I stand behind the deputy, so you know we've, we've developed our own safety techniques. And then we start speaking with the client. So depending on who the client is, if we know them, we'll both start speaking. Sometimes the deputy starts to speak first just as a safety technique. And then depending on who the client is, sometimes they'll open up to the deputy, sometimes they'll open up to me being a DLC employee. So sometimes we'll talk to people for an hour, two hours, and you know that they just needed to vent and they're fine after that. We've spent a whole day on a call and we spent five minutes on a call. We've gotten doors slammed in our faces, so it really just depends, you know. This first check of the day was with a man living in Golden Gate. We pulled up to his apartment complex and stood in the front parking lot, talking for a few minutes. So how you been? I've been, uh, been doing good. Okay. Yeah, like, even with all of my medication is like, you know how somebody told me one time, just breathe. You know, and because I got, I got a lot of thoughts, you know, like, I've still been trying to find out the source of the voices, right? So still paranoid yeah. thoughts? Yeah, and then I'm like, I'm like, man. Have you, uh, have you been listening to music still, like you were telling me last time? Yeah. To help you out? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I try to be peaceful, you know? <laughs> but then it's like, I could hear some real destructive music, and then it's like, it's no good, you know? Yeah. We're going to leave out the man's real name, but John Doe here is someone who has only been on the agency's radar for about a year. He was identified by a patrol deputy who referred him to our mental health bureau, where he's been getting wellness checks for about nine months. But unlike Jake, John has never gone through mental health court. But because we know he's someone who benefits from regular medical care and attention, our deputies make it a point to pop in occasionally to ensure that he's getting that. That's heartwarming and all, but if you're like me, you're kind of wondering why this is law enforcement's responsibility. Aren't deputies supposed to be looking for bad guys and enforcing the law? Why isn't some other agency doing this part? And why is anyone doing it at all? Well, it turns out this role makes a lot of sense for law enforcement. In this episode, we'll take a look at what the agency's mental health bureau is doing to ultimately prevent crime. Sworn Statement is a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office exploring local cases and public safety issues, all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. Season 2 takes a look at the mental health crisis locally and what deputies are doing to help. Episode 3 is called The Safety Net. All told, the exchange Carrie and Sergeant Tavery had with John Doe lasted less than 15 minutes. And while the visit was unplanned, it happened at a good time. Carrie learned that John had run out of his prescription medication, and folks at the David Lawrence Center hadn't been able to see him when he dropped in for a refill. 
Instead, he had to make an appointment, and the visit with deputies happened before that appointment could. And then I'm like, I just want one pill, you know what I'm saying? It's like to help me calm down, you know, because then my thoughts start racing, and then yeah. it's like voices just pop out of nowhere, you know, crazy voices, you know, male, female, whatever. You know? Yeah, I'm off my medication right now. So you don't have any Seroquel left? No, nah, I went yesterday. So they tried to get me in there yesterday, but I'm waiting for Wednesday to come, you know. It's coming Wednesday. Do you have a ride? Yeah. Okay. If you need a ride or something, call me. You still have my card? Yeah. Okay. No, I need another one. Okay, here. And then, within that short visit, they also had a chance to just kind of learn more about John and build their rapport. John, it turns out, is an artist. So he grabbed some of his drawings from inside the apartment to show Carrie and Sergeant Tavery. But yeah, there's like two people right there. You see oh, the road, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. it's, it's the middle of a road, some, some kind of road. Some roads are like that, you know what I'm saying? They got two lines in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, that flame is gonna be like purple. Yeah. Those are beautiful. Yeah, I just gotta, I gotta finish it, you know? You have talent. Yeah, I did a whole bunch of tattoos and stuff. Yeah, on people, mm -hmm. you know? I remember. A lot of people walking around with my stuff. <laughs> I'm gonna do a painting in the sky one day just by thinking about it. Alright? Nah, it's crazy. Well, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's alright. You're aware, man. You know what you're doing. Yeah. Keep it up. Make it till Wednesday. Yeah. Okay? And then be honest with them. If you need us, let us know. Yeah. Okay? All right. Appreciate it. This tag team approach between Carrie and Sergeant Tavery works really well. It gives John a chance to talk to either person, and it ensures safety during home checks with individuals whose behavior can become dangerous. Here's Lieutenant Leslie Weidenhammer, who oversees the Mental Health Bureau, explaining why it works. Now we go out, obviously, in a more of a dress down mode where we're not always wearing the gray law enforcement uniform. So it's easier for them to approach and talk to us. But, but I'll say, well, we have Carrie here from David Lawrence, licensed clinical social worker. Would you like to talk to her? Yes. But they'll open up to her. So we'll let them talk to her. We'll sort of step back where we can't really hear what's going on. We keep a close eye and stay close that if we need to respond to protect her, we will. At the second wellness check that day, Carrie and Sergeant Tavery visited a woman who we'll call Jane Doe. Clever, right? Jane's situation is a lot different than John's. She's been on the agency's radar for 11 years. You guys visit me more than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I like everybody. Uh, How are you? Good. Jane has been arrested several times over the years, mostly for drug possession charges. Then, in 2016, she was identified as someone who would benefit from mental health court, and she went on to graduate from the program. That's when our deputies started doing regular wellness checks with her. And it seems to be working. Jane has not been arrested since. Things are pretty good. Yeah, um... I don't do too much, you know. I stay at home a lot. I walk around and I swim and I like to go shopping, you know. Um, uh, I call you folks a lot, you know, because I have a lot of concerns with what's going on. Like today, I contacted the IRS. You know, it's amazing the things you notice on TV. 
like the credit card crisis, okay? Yeah. People don't get it. Jane has a habit of watching television and then calling our tip line to report crimes and conspiracies that she's concerned about. When her calls become frequent, Carrie knows that it's time to schedule another visit, just to make sure that Jane is on her medication and seeing her doctors when necessary. So by sharing these things, you know, that aren't being shared on TV, you know, I hope, um, you know, people communicate they care. You know, why aren't the vegetables going off the shelf? The price is too high. Yeah. You know, I'm an activist. <laughs> you know, so I keep busy in that way. That tap dancing that you hear in the background? That's Jane's little dog. You'll hear him whining in this next clip, too. Okay. We've talked about the, the sheriff's office tip line. Mm-hmm. It's for if a crime happens to you or a crime happens to someone else or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you've been calling a lot. Yes. And getting a lot of voicemails. Yes. So make sure you try to keep it just to the crime stuff. Okay? Okay. And we've talked about changing the channel sometimes. Because you're getting so involved in this, I don't want it to be negative on your lifestyle. Because okay. that's all you're focused on is all this stuff. Well, you know, when you don't work anymore and stuff. Because the Mental Health Bureau is familiar with Jane and deputies visit her regularly, they've established a good barometer for her mental state. They know when she's having a good day and when she's having a bad one, and they know what to look for in terms of red flags. During this visit, Jane was just fine. We're just checking on you. Okay. If you need anything, let us know. You still have my card? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you another one just in case. Okay. And if and you still have Lizzie's number, I'm sure. But yes. If you need anything, let me know. Okay. Even though nothing necessarily came of this visit with Jane, it's still important that deputies are checking in regularly. Consider it the equivalent of your six-month cleaning at the dentist. Just because the x-rays didn't show a cavity doesn't mean that you didn't prevent a few from taking hold. Nancy Dauphiné is the CEO of the David Lawrence Center, and she explained that treatment for many with mental health problems is a lifetime commitment that continues long after requirements for mental health court have ended. And so this partnership with law enforcement acts as a link between those who need services and those who provide them. I think it's important to understand that mental health and addiction, these conditions are, are chronic. For, for most people, many people, they're chronic medical conditions that take ongoing management. So I think when we think about diagnoses like asthma or high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, and these are all conditions that require kind of regular maintenance. They require ongoing doctor's support, medications, and lifestyle, right? Lifestyle changes. So if you've got diabetes, you know there's stuff that you could do to either make your condition worse or better for most people. And so I think when we start thinking about mental health conditions, it's the same way. Katie Burroughs is the forensic supervisor for the David Lawrence Center. She works closely with the Mental Health Bureau to coordinate care for folks in and out of mental health court. She said that the arrangement for in-home visits has worked well so far. But I have to be very careful when I'm putting my staff in the homes of these individuals because they go and do community work. So there may be times um, that, you know, I say, listen, I'm not going to let you transport them. 
they cannot, you cannot put them in your vehicle. They have company, we have company vehicles that the staff use, and, and I say, no, this person has a weapon charge, you know, and it's, and so I will also get with the lieutenant at times and just get some feedback from her because I have to make sure that where everyone is protected, um, so that can, you know, at times be, be a challenge, but I think because we're so tight niched and everyone's talking and communicating, we do a very, very good job at, at keeping the client safe. But in some cases, when an individual is symptomatic, when they're showing signs that they may harm themselves or others, or if they're neglecting their own health and care, Carrie and Sergeant Tavery are ready and able to take them into protective custody under the provisions of the Baker Act. The Baker Act is Florida's Mental Health Act. It was established in 1971, and it allows law enforcement officials, physicians, and mental health professionals to take individuals into protective custody for involuntary examinations. And they've had to do this in the past. Sergeant Weidenhammer explained this to me during a separate ride-along. If deputies go on Baker Act somebody, then they are going to take them to David Lawrence, and they go to the emergency stabilization unit first there at David Lawrence, to be evaluated, and if they are admitted on the Baker Act by the doctor there, then the crisis stabilization unit, they may stay for three, four days or longer, depending on the situation, and it's a stabilization unit. It's a, not a long-term care. The stabilization unit gets patients set up with doctor's appointments and medication, and even reaches out to family members to make sure that someone is around and aware of the situation so that the patient can get some support. Once someone has been stabilized, they can be released. Going into the home is very important for wherever they're staying to make sure that, one, somebody's not in there taking advantage of them, and two, that they're, they're hanging around good people. We need to check and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and there's no alcohol in the home or things that they shouldn't be doing, and on that other side, making sure that they have food and things are going well. All of this information about an individual's home life is important to their overall success, and specifically for their success in mental health court. So Lieutenant Weidenhammer and her team will share those details with case managers through the David Lawrence Center and at the courthouse, and they'll try to get that person help if they need it. We try to connect them with resources, usually um, they have a case manager and Carrie or our team at the sheriff's office. We have resources that we can go to and get food brought in and, and that's part of being those eyes and ears to let the team know, their case managers know, hey look, we got a bigger problem here. Their basic needs are not being met. They're not, they don't have clothing, they don't have enough food. So we know that we've got to, we've got to address that their wellness is going to be in danger if we're not meeting those basic needs. If the situation is dire, the Baker Act allows law enforcement to stop everything and seek emergency treatment for an individual. But as you probably know, the Baker Act is not just a tool for the Mental Health Bureau. If you know someone who is threatening suicide or has gone missing after struggles with depression, you can call 911 and deputies will respond. Sometimes folks in crisis just need to know that help is available. But in other cases, the Baker Act is a tool of last resort that ensures someone in crisis is seen by a medical professional.
We've heard from Lieutenant Weidenhammer a few times now, but I haven't really properly introduced her. Because this episode focuses on the work of the Bureau, it's important to understand why the person in charge has had so much impact on its success. The Sheriff's Office is the only law enforcement agency that I've known. I'm from Indiana. I started here 1992 in dispatch and just sort of went through everything. Community service deputy, jail, corrections, uh, patrol, patrol supervisor, training, and now here I am. Lieutenant Weidenhammer has a background in teaching, so she spent a lot of time in the training bureau here and a few colleagues got her involved in some of the services the agency offers to deputies who have been through traumatic incidents on the job. At one point, a mentor suggested that she get her master's degree in mental health counseling to help with that work. And she did that, fully intending to help deputies. But eventually, that education lent itself to the CIT training we talked about in episode one. And I got involved, and slowly but surely, I just got immersed in it so 2015, the sheriff said, listen, I want to I want to jettison this thing really forward. Please, I'd like you to start a mental health bureau. So slowly but surely, I got involved in mental health issues, substance use issues within the community. Lieutenant Weidenhammer calls herself the accidental advocate because while she wound up being pretty good at the job, it wasn't necessarily her goal or intent to be doing the work that she's doing today. My brother who is now deceased, struggled with mental health issues. And I always approached things and individuals I encountered, whether I recognized there was something going on or just that, you know, it's just a bad day because I pulled them over. I've always approached somebody with treat others the way you want to be treated. When it came to my brother, he was put in jail a couple times, and a couple of his encounters with law enforcement were good, and a couple of them were not so good. So I, I always looked at it that way. I always wanted to make sure that I approached somewhat, somebody as if they were my family member, and I want other officers to approach somebody as if they were my family member too. Lieutenant Weidenhammer has won a couple awards for her work so far. Last year, she was recognized by the Greater Naples Chamber of Commerce for her work, and she also earned the Collier County Bar Association's Medal of Honor for her work with the specialty courts. As far back as 2011, she earned NAMI's Award for Crisis Intervention Team Officer of the Year. All that said, she was the perfect fit for the new Mental Health Bureau back in 2015. Like any other new direction that an organization is going, you, you want the most passionate people you can find. And, and certainly uh, the lieutenant is the most passionate person I could find in this organization. When I first started reporting on this season of the podcast, I knew a little bit about the work that CCSO does related to mental health. I knew, for example, that our deputies underwent CIT training, and I mostly understood how treatment courts worked. I even got why we might have a mental health bureau. But I had a hard time at first understanding why these home checks were law enforcement's responsibility. Why we would dedicate trained deputies to making house calls to folks who weren't on probation and who weren't even necessarily criminals. Everything clicked into place for me personally after speaking to Judge Martin. 
One of the main reasons that law enforcement is so critical here is, is that severe mental illness will oftentimes rob a person of all of their other supports. So, and, and it is not uncommon for people to have poor insight into their own disease. By the time law enforcement's coming into the picture, they're often interacting with somebody who is floridly psychotic, has no supports in this world, um, and has no ability to access treatment without the assistance of law enforcement. So we can debate whether we like that law enforcement is uh, so, uh, you know, well used in this setting, but the reality is uh, for a lot of our sickest neighbors, there is no other pathway to treatment. They will never access it on their own. And it's not because they don't want it. The cruel irony is that a lot of the best resources right now are coming to people by virtue of a criminal arrest. That's backward. I think this sentiment really sums up the point. The point being that we as a law enforcement agency are keenly aware of the mental health crisis our country is facing and how it plays out here locally in Southwest Florida. And while we aren't the ones in charge of treating these people, or even changing the laws to improve funding for their care, we do come into contact with them through the regular course of policing. And if we are coming into contact with them, aren't we somehow in a position to help? And shouldn't we? Maybe it's too hard for some to believe that that could be the motive. But whatever you believe, it ends up being the outcome. Because even as these efforts save money, keep deputies safe, or decrease the jail population, they also help to right the ship for a lot of folks. They help to break the cycle of incarceration and help to get them proper medication, then provides a safety net so they don't end up in a violent encounter with law enforcement. These efforts help to keep them out of jail too, so they can actually get better. And as Sheriff Kevin Rambosk points out, our deputies' proactive wellness checks likely do save money and time down the road. Part of the mental health unit's responsibility uh, when we created it in 2017 was to look specifically through those individuals who had returned to our jail facility over and over again and stop that. And one of the ways you stop it is you visit, you call, you check, knock on the door, Hi, how you doing? Everything going okay? Are you on your meds? Do you need any help? And if everything looks good, that may take two minutes to five minutes. If we have to respond to handle a crisis, we could be there for hours. And, and the result of that crisis can be injury, can be death. It, there are so many ramifications we'd rather invest the time up front. And it's a small amount of time and it's a small amount of money relative to having somebody return to the jail 34 times and then create a, a tragic event. It's no different than anything we do in a proactive community to prevent bad things from occurring.
As part of her work with the Mental Health Bureau, Carrie works closely with staff at Collier County Public Schools to connect students to treatment. Following the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida, laws went into effect in the state requiring more mental health professionals across each school district. Collier Schools had most of these staff already in place, but the new positions have enhanced their offerings to students in need of mental health services. Part of the aim for the Parkland laws was to prevent violence that stems from mental health problems, and that approach is forcing schools to address the potential underlying causes of mental health issues. And violence is just one symptom. Caroline Brennan and Dr. Dina Landry work on psychological and mental health services in the school district. I think it's been a paradigm shift mm -hmm. for the entire state, community, and nation, nation. as a whole. Um, People are recognizing um, the prevalence of mental health issues um, and that if caught early prevention is, um, I mean, if caught early treatment, it can be successful and can um, hopefully halt and not get into even more serious things. Uh, but we're doing a lot of things in the school system to help develop um, a sense of belonging and a sense of community and um, just to help the kids feel like somebody cares about them and they do belong in the schools. One of the things that we've seen is that um, social isolation tends to be a big factor that contributes mm -hmm. to deteriorating mental health. And when people can build relationships and make connections with others, that's key. And so that's been a real focus mm -hmm. for us this year. So it's not really just even the, the mental health intervention. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the how can we support mental wellness for our students. Right. and For that, any student that's struggling. Right. And doing that prevention piece, um, if we can really start to build, especially as we look at the elementary and middle mm -hmm. schools, if we can really start to build that, hopefully we can see less and less um, of issues with mental illness moving forward. This is important because over the last decade or so, there's been an increase statewide in the number of children who are being Baker-acted. Some of that's attributed to the training school officials are getting when it comes to recognizing the signs of mental illness. And that's a good thing. The Collier County District also started a few new programs recently. One is geared toward elementary school students. It's called the Buddy Bench. When a kid is lonely or looking for a playmate that day, they can sit on a designated bench at recess to signal to the other students. Here's Caroline Brennan. We have what we call our friendship ambassadors, and they're students that are trained um, really on sort of how to pay attention to when another student might be alone on the playground or not have a friend or need someone to talk to. And then the other students are trained to make sure that they go over to them and try to engage them um, in maybe playing with other students or in conversation. There's a similar program geared toward middle and high schoolers called We Dine Together. It's a national program that started in Florida. And those students are similarly trained, and they try to engage students who might just be sitting alone or sitting on their phone and try to start up conversations and find out what some of their interests are, just so that we don't have students that are isolated from the rest of the school community. The school district has also started showing videos twice a month focusing on various topics and featuring messages from each school's principal. Topics include social awareness, responsible decision-making, and grit, the courage that navigating adolescence sometimes requires. All of these topics touch on the importance of building a strong community to prevent students from becoming isolated, which we know can compound certain mental health problems. 
when a new student comes into the district or transfers from within, they meet with a counselor to get acclimated. And that counselor checks back in at the 30 and 60 day marks to make sure the student has found their footing. Perhaps one of the most important aspects of the district's approach to mental health is a training that all school faculty and staff is now required to complete. The training gives school employees tools to recognize possible mental health problems in students, and it empowers them to refer those students to school mental health counselors. Here's Dr. Dina Landry. They're not trained in this and they don't make official diagnoses, but just how to see some of the warning signs in their students, in the other staff at school, at home, their neighbors, their friends, and just how to recognize those warning signs and how to get help. Students in Florida schools are broken up into tiers as they relate to mental health interventions. Tier 1 is a term used to describe the bulk of students in the district who don't have a problem that school staff is concerned about. Tier 2 is for some students who need some level of intervention. And Tier 3 is for students who require significant therapeutic intervention and collaboration with medical professionals outside the district. These are students for whom other interventions have not worked. It's also for students who are returning to the classroom following a Baker Act. The model is like 5% of your population would be receiving that um, intensive intervention, and then about 10 to 15 would be receiving the targeted interventions. Those percentages are fluid, as students are often moving from one tier to the next. Our goal is to find something that works and gets them um, back into the 80% where they don't need all these additional interventions. Right. Overall, the district has been pleasantly surprised to see how well students receive the help and the information that they put out. It's amazing with students. They're very open and willing to talk about these kind of issues more so. I think it's more the adults that have that uncomfortable feeling. And I think it's, it's us as adults that create that stigma for them mm-hmm. over time. Um, you know, students really want to talk about what's happening for them. Uh, it's, it's the adults that are usually uncomfortable with that. In the first episode of Season 2 of Sworn Statement, I outlined the CIT training that our officers began completing about 11 years ago. During the second episode, we talked about Mental Health Court, which had been operating in Collier County since 2007. And in this episode, you heard about the Mental Health Bureau, which we started in 2015. Now I'll tell you about the biggest milestone plan for the future of mental health in Collier County. In November 2018, Collier County voters approved a seven-year, one-cent sales surtax that went into effect January 1, 2019. The tax will raise an estimated $490 million over seven years, and the money will be used for county infrastructure and public safety projects. Among the first is a new central receiving facility for the county's designated Baker Act facility, the David Lawrence Center. Sheriff Rambosk was a proponent of the tax. You know, nobody wants to pay a sales tax, and I don't either. But when you look at what we could do with the portion of dollars relative to mental health and build a central receiving center, which is 
properly staffed with mental health professionals, which is where uh, the dollars are going to go towards mental health in Collier County, we as a community will benefit because law enforcement will be able to respond and identify, will be able to refer out of the jail, not even go to the jail, go directly to a central receiving center, get the professional help that the individual needs, and we'll be able to turn around and be back on the road in 15 minutes instead of today, if the David Lawrence Center is full, we may have to transport out of county and that takes law enforcement services away from, from our residents. Nancy Dauphiné said the David Lawrence Center has observed a growing need for a larger facility. We might have sometimes three, four, or five squad cars with individuals under Baker Act waiting to be processed, and so we need to expand that receiving area, as well as the beds for once they're admitted. So I think we just need to open up that those bottlenecks, build some capacity, and that will hopefully alleviate some of the pressure on the current campus as well. You know, for the last mm, probably five, six, seven years, the, the number of individuals that are coming to our crisis stabilization unit as Collier County's only Baker Act receiving facility, um, those numbers have been growing and they've been increasing, um, particularly for children, but we've seen higher numbers of, of individuals being Baker Acted every single year, year over year. The new central receiving facility would also be equipped to handle Marchman Acts. Like Baker Acts, the Marchman Act is a tool law enforcement uses to take individuals who are impaired by alcohol or other substances into protective custody until they sober up. We need more crisis unit beds, and we also need beds of a different capacity. So we know that right now the jail has a, a Marchman Act receiving facility, uh, so folks aren't necessarily criminally involved, but they're being detained because they're impaired due to the Marchman Act, and we'd really like to see, have that treated more in a, a receiving facility like at our, our agency. So so folks that don't haven't committed a crime but are at risk because they're impaired, they can be treated by addiction professionals in a more medical rehabilitative setting. The Mental Health Ad Hoc Committee has been meeting regularly to discuss the new receiving facility and to make plans for the building. Okay, we're going to get started. We are uh, just a couple minutes after 2 o'clock, so we'll get started timely here. Uh, so we'll call to order uh, our meeting, and we start with the Pledge of Allegiance. So we'll, we'll stand. Scott Burgess chairs the ad hoc committee. He's the chief executive officer for the David Lawrence Center. I, I think what our original uh, scope was that we put into the, the plan, the concept uh, plan had uh, at least 60 uh, Baker Act beds in the, uh, so that would be a mix of adult children. Um, and I'd have to go back to the original plans, but um, then, then there was additional space for Marchman Act. There was additional space for the uh, emergency uh, assessment center, which would be where all the um, observation and evaluation takes place. Currently, we've got three beds, uh, three room capacity. They mentioned seven. I think in our plan, we actually put 12 so that we could grow into that across time. 
Um, so we do have some parameters. The total on it, I think, was either 50 or 55,000 square feet, two-story. Um, so we do have some concept based on population currently and on population growth, being able to grow into it. During this meeting in the spring, the committee had a conference call with another Florida Baker Act facility to discuss best practices. And they also reviewed some data collected by Florida's Baker Act Reporting Center, which compares the number of Baker Acts across Florida counties. And that's the data that supported that by percentage, Collier County had the largest Children's Baker Act growth right. in the entire state. So we can continue to look at that. It was such an enormous oh, difference between Collier and the other. It's like 170% increase. You know why? Lieutenant Widenhammer jumps in here. Part of it could be that with the initiative from after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas over on the other coast, the state made mandates for school systems to have counselors within the school. And Carter County is fortunate that, at least in Carter County Public Schools, we have <clears throat> licensed clinical counselors in the school who can do the Baker Acts now. And the kids are being identified and with their initiatives on the social-emotional learning aspects of things. I suspect that's part of the rise in it that's going on, that it's being identified more now and, and something's being done. Groundbreaking for the new DLC Intake Center is still far off, but officials here say that they're heartened by the other anecdotal measures of success around the topic of mental health. Katie Burroughs said that she's seen the stigma around mental illness improve during her time in Collier County. She's worked for the David Lawrence Center since 1999, with the exception of a one-year stint in Orlando. I think, you know, everyone has um, recognized that it's, it is treatable, that if we put money into to helping these people instead of institutionalizing them, whether that be in a, a state forensic facility or just in jail, that is not where they need to be. So if we can, you know, fund um, and, and get the help that they need, we can do wraparound services, we can hopefully help them to become productive members of society. And the officials in charge of addressing these public health issues are optimistic. And we see so many miracles of recovery every day. And so I always want to end on a message of hope. We know treatment works. We know there are strategies that we can utilize. And while we may have a lot of ground to cover still, we are really doing amazing things in this community. There are a few communities that have created teams and services that are directly related or a part of law enforcement, but we are one of the few in the nation that are doing the proactive work and the partnerships that we are doing here in Collier County. It can be overwhelming to think about the big picture and all the work that needs to be done to improve these sometimes intangible goals, which is why I love the message Jake's mom has for anyone trying to help a loved one who is struggling with mental health problems. The, I guess the real secret is never give up. You know, I mean, we, we knew that inside he's this wonderful human being and compassionate and caring and intelligent. And, and this was a side of him that was not really him. That, that there's a, that deeper side of him that's the true person. And so you just never give up on that person. Mm -hmm.
Sworn Statement is a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk. It is produced, written, and recorded by me, your host, Christine Gill. Listen on SoundCloud and wherever you find podcasts. Follow our Facebook page for updates on Season 3.